Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. Dante Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dante Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And it is Tuesday, August 30th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And tonight's topic is Cut Your Risk of Ovarian Cancer in Half. And I, Dante Daniels, of course, will tell you how. Now, the backdrop, background. We hear a lot about cancer, and it's a scary word that people are just just upset about, and they just hear the word cancer, and they just rush off to spend $100,000, dollars $300,000 just because they hear one little word. So, and we hear about the truth about cancer. Well, isn't it great that modern medicine has looked into the ovarian cancer issue and found how women can cut their risk of ovarian cancer in half. No need to run for the cure, no need for screening exams, and as always, things happen. So first, I'm going to talk about ovarian cancer. What is it? What causes it? Who gets it? um, What the survival is. Then we're going to talk about what makes it more likely that you can get it, and then some startling research that the medical industrial complex itself has uncovered. All right, let us get started. And as always, Curious minds want to know. So ovarian cancer is not just ovarian cancer. So ovarian cancer is classified as cancer of the ovaries, fallopian tubes, and peritoneal cancer. So that's in a woman, this is cancer that actually lines the intestinal cavity. And so the question is, uh, who gets it? Who gets it? And so... It's interesting that people who have a family history, so if you have a relative that, gets, that has ovarian cancer, then you might get it. Of course, there's genetics. And so if you have the BRA1, BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, those are associated with breast cancer, but they work for ovarian cancer too. And of course, there are genetic syndromes. I'm not going to list them. Why? Because there's nothing you can do about them. Either you have these genes or you don't. So 
what else? Age. Can't control your age either. Age 60 to 62. So you can see how this is shaping up. So your age is totally, your age and your genetics are totally beyond your control. Uh, but they list these things as a fa- cancer factors. And this helps to give people the feeling that cancer is somehow inevitable or inescapable. So this is what we call a PSYOP or psychological operation. All right, ethnicity. Again, can't control your ethnic group, but just in case you want to know, woman of North American, North European, or Ashkenazi Jewish heritage have an increased risk of ovarian cancer. Ah, something you can control. Reproductive history. Women who have unexplained infertility. In other words, they've never had a kid and they've never taken a birth control pill. Uh, Those people have a higher risk of ovarian cancer. People who have had hormone replacement therapy. People who take estrogen-only hormone replacement therapy after menopause have a higher risk of ovarian cancer. Those of you who are listening, people who take estrogen and progesterone have a higher risk of breast cancer. So if you're taking hormone replacement therapy, your chances of certain cancers are going to increase no matter how you do it, just by the way. So there's not a lot going on here. Uh, Nothing much you can control. Okay, endometriosis, if you have a history of that, you're more likely to get ovarian cancer. Let's read a little bit deeper into this, though. Weight and height. So women who are obese in early adulthood, that would be, we'll just say that's under age 25, people who are obese at that age are 50% more likely to develop ovarian cancer. Well, who are these women who are overweight age 25 and younger? Answer, they are milk drinkers. Yes, milk drinkers. The hormones in milk make them overweight. Endometriosis, another complication of dairy intake. And so we see two dairy-related factors in ovarian cancer. And whether or not you eat dairy is obviously something you can control. Ethnicity, can't control that. It is what it is. And how do they say you should prevent this? Of course, take birth control pills, naturally. Women who take oral contraceptives for more than three years are 30% to 50% less likely to develop ovarian cancer. Unfortunately, um, this decrease in risk only lasts for 30 years after a woman stops taking the pills. Well, if a woman stops taking the pills at age 30, then her risk of ovarian cancer at age 60 is no different, which is, well, the peak incidence of ovarian cancer in, the, in your 60s. So taking birth control pills is of limited value. However, if you breastfeed, the longer a woman breastfeeds, the lower her risk of ovarian cancer. So this is the case for breastfeeding, breastfeeding until the kid is five years old or just having five kids in a row, so you breastfeed continuously, however you want to work that out. So breastfeeding is protective. Pregnancy. The more full-term pregnancy the woman has had, the lower her risk of ovarian and fallopian tube cancer. I've only had three full-term pregnancies, so I don't know where my risk lies on that scale. Surgical procedures. Women who have had a hysterectomy or tubal ligation have a lower risk of developing ovarian cancer. So hysterectomy is a removal of the uterus and sometimes the cervix. So even though the ovaries are left, simply removing the uterus and cervix reduces ovarian cancer. That's interesting. Doctors recommend taking, removing both ovaries for women with a high risk of ovarian uh, cancer. 
And of course, nobody has high risk of ovarian cancer because it's a rare disease affecting only more or less 25,000 American women a year who uh, die of it. All right, so this is, this is the standard um, medical therapy. This is at www.cancer.net. And the bottom of the page says, find a cancer doctor. So this is the pro-cancer, uh, you know, pro-establishment view. So it's important for you to realize this is the pro-establishment view. And so since then we say, oh, my God, this sounds terrible. What can I do to screen for this? Can we detect this cancer early? And this is the, the doc.gov CDC website, and it says, screening is a test used to look for disease before there are symptoms. Cancer screening tests work when they find disease early, when treatment works best. Diagnostic tests are used when a person has symptoms. Okay, so the PAP test does not look for ovarian cancer, just in case you want to know. And there is no simple and reliable way to screen for any gynecologic cancer except cervical cancer. In other words, there is no way, no reliable or simple way to check for ovarian cancer, even though there are people who get blood tests. So ask your doctor if you should have a diagnostic test, like a rectovaginal pelvic exam. So that's where the doctor puts his finger up your rectum, the lady's rectum, that means her butt, and her vagina at the same time. Transvaginal ultrasound, that's where he sticks an ultrasound probe into the woman's vagina, or a CA-125 blood test. If, uh, of course, you have symptoms or signs, then can, it's not screening because, you know, you've already got the cancer pretty much. If you've had other types of reproductive cancers like breast or uterine or colon cancer, then, of course, you have a genetic uh, predisposition. So why do they say if you've had these things? Because the, these tests, the rectovaginal pelvic exam, the transvaginal ultrasound, and the CA-125 have a pretty high false positive rate. And so they want the woman to pre-screen herself based on her symptoms and uh, her history. And so these tests are basically, as I said before, not reliable. All right, so that's the screening story on ovarian cancer. This is looking pretty, uh, uh, pretty dismal. And what can you do to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer? According to this site, you can get birth control pills, which, of course, increase your, your chances of breast cancer. You can um, have your tubes tied, have a hysterectomy, have everything removed, um, and you can give birth, and you can breastfeed. And so they say, don't do these things, though, because they're all pretty chancy. Check with your doctor first before you do anything like breastfeed or give birth. Oh, my God. Okay, so there you have it. That's that story. Now, you would think, Uh, with all of this, that ovarian cancer is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty inevitable. I mean, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. So, what really? Let's take a look at the cancer site. This is uh, NIH.gov, National Cancer Institute Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Program. It's called SEER, S-E-E-R dot cancer dot gov. And so, if you look at what they say about ovarian cancer, it's after five years, despite therapy. Only 46% of women live even five years after being diagnosed. 
That's pretty dismal, pretty, pretty dismal. And so the new cases of ovarian cancer have been declining since 1992. So it's declined from uh, 15 per 100,000 down to about 12 per 100,000. Not a huge decline, but a decline. And the deaths have gone from 10 per 100,000 down to uh, about 8 or 7 per 100,000. So there is a decline, uh, however, um, slightly. And so the lifetime risk of developing cancer, that's the annual risk I just quoted you. So the lifetime risk of developing cancer, ovarian cancer, is about 1.3% of all women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer at some point during their lifetime. That's interesting. And as you said, their survival is, uh, is not good. Only 46%. That's pretty bad, I think. Um, and the trend is that it's a mild, um, a mild decline. So once you get this cancer, it's pretty much, um, you know, uh, seven, uh, 58% chance that you're going to be dead in five years. So that is not good. So let's take a look at um, what your doctor found out in his inbox not too long ago about ovarian cancer. This is this is shocking. And I notice that none of these notice all these things you can do to prevent ovarian cancer involve getting pregnant, having more babies, uh, breastfeeding, and notice that if your parents or relatives have it, you got it too. And so if your parents or relatives have it and you have it too, there's a good chance it's actually cultural and not genetic. So let's take a look and see what they told your doctor in August of 2016. Ovarian cancer risk nearly doubles in women who douche. Can you believe that? Douching. Douching nearly doubles your risk of ovarian cancer. That is absolutely shocking. And do you think they could mention that in any cancer prevention online information? No. Too simple. Way too simple. So you won't, you won't hear this on the 6 o'clock news. But your doctor has heard it. It's in his inbox. And so what do they say? Well, no study has ever before examined a possible relationship between douching and ovarian cancer. Um, she is a deputy, this is the deputy chief of biostatistics and computational biology branch at the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. So a number of health reasons not to douche, and I can't think of any reason to douche, she says. Wait, calm down. She must not be a lady. So obviously, if you have a yeast infection, that's an excellent reason to douche, to get all that gunk and junk out of your vagina so you don't itch so bad. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons uh, to douche. Vaginas naturally clean themselves, and squirting cleansers or other mixtures inside the canal can only interfere with nature's balance. Again, there are a lot of women who have bacterial vaginosis, which is a very annoying, continual, leaky discharge. Well, obviously, douching is going to clean things out in the morning, so by afternoon, they're not going to have this pad soaked with goo. So douching can cause an overgrowth of harmful bacteria. It can lead to yeast infections and push bacteria up into the uterus. 
although it's not clear that that's the mechanism. But at any rate, there is no, there can be no dispute that women who douche more often are getting, or douche at all, are getting ovarian cancer. So according to the Department of Women's Health at U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, bacteria are pushed up into the uterus. So are these bacteria causing ovarian cancer? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Nevertheless, one-fourth of women between the ages of 15 and 44 douche. One-quarter. Interesting. So Brown, who led a 2016 study published in um, an online source, said women's motivations for douching, and she has long been fascinated by the display of so-called feminine hygiene products lining drugstore shelves. In most pharmacies, you can find entire aisles dedicated to vaginal douches, suppositories and gels that are meant to make your vagina smell like a tropical flash or a cookie, she said. Women douched as far back as 1500 B.C. when an Egyptian papyrus recommended intravaginal washing with garlic and wine to treat menstrual disorders. Now, just for the record, I do recommend douching with garlic tea to get rid of vaginal yeast, and it does work wonderfully. Uh, for information on that, you can get the Candida Cleaner at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash Candida. So American women once douched with Lysol, and some mistook the toilet bowl disinfectant for birth control. Women often learn to douche from their mothers. And so here we have the genetic link. This is a cultural habit, douching that people pick up from their mothers. And so, of course, if this douching doubles your risk of ovarian cancer and you learn it from your mother who also douches, then naturally she's going to get ovarian cancer and boom, her kids are going to be more likely to get ovarian cancer. In other words, it is not genetic at all. Okay. Despite medical recommendations, douching remains commonplace practice because women believe the products they're using would not be for sale or recommended by their mothers if they were not safe, Brown said. And this is a huge, huge mistake people make. They believe that if something is over the counter, it must be safe. No, not true. If something's over the counter, the FDA may have approved it for over the counter labeling, but that's all. How they made that decision, on what criteria, nobody knows. And certainly safety is obviously not one of them because you can get into a lot of trouble with over the counter drugs, and many people do. Things like Benadryl causing Alzheimer's. So the over-the-counter shelf is filled with stuff that will literally ruin your health, ruin your life. And just because you've given up prescription drugs, just because maybe you decide not to go see doctors, if you are still shopping in the over-the-counter aisle at your drugstore, your life is very much in danger. So in general, I think women do not realize that douching products do not fall under the same kind of safety regulations as drugs. Instead, douching products are considered cosmetics, which means that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration does not require that douche manufacturers test their products for safety. In other words, when you put something in your vaginal area, it is not classified as being um, a drug. If you put it in your vagina, it is not perceived as something you are ingesting when actually you are. So when you uh, 
um, put these liquids into your vaginal area, you're putting all of these um, preservatives, cancer-causing chemicals, and stuff into your body. And this is what's causing ovarian cancer. And so if women stop using commercial douches then, or chemicals like Lysol, then the frequency of ovarian cancer would literally be half. And as we can see, it's already pretty low. So going down to half would just be awesome. So this is, this is an, an illness that absolutely is not worth screening for at all. Not at all. Why? Because it's just so easily, uh, easily prevented. So let's go take a look at some other research. Government's full of research on this matter. And this is um, PubMed, and this is the uh, National Library of Medicine, nationalinstitutesofhealth.gov. And this says douching, calc use, and risk of ovarian cancer. Very interesting. Their uh, conclusion, douching but not calc use, was associated with increased risk of ovarian cancer in the sister studies. They compared sisters. So douching was recently reported to be associated with elevated levels of endocrine-disrupting phthalates. But there's no literature on douching in relation to ovarian cancer, at least not when this was uh, published in, in June. Numerous case control studies of genetic talc use, or genital talc use, sorry, have reported an increased risk of ovarian cancer. But prospective cohort studies have not uniformly confirmed this association. But there is a behavioral correlation between talc use and douching, and this produces confounding results. So a sister study enrolled and followed 50,000 women in the United States and Puerto Rico who had a sister diagnosed with breast cancer. At baseline, participants were asked about douching and talc use during the previous 12 months. During follow-up, 6.6 years, 154 participants reported a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. We computed adjusted hazard ratios and 95% confidence intervals for ovarian cancer risk using the proportional hazard model. And the result? Douching was more common among talc users. So a person who uses talc uh, on their genital area is twice as likely to douche. And douching at baseline was associated with increased risk of ovarian cancer, 1.8 to uh, 2.8 times as much. So basically, two to three times as likely to get ovarian cancer among the douchers. And what is the reason for this? Well, the prevailing wisdom is that these women are using chemical products. And so the real problem with douching is that the products used for douching are um, cancer-causing chemicals. And the reason they're allowed in douches is because douches are classified as cosmetic uh, products not products for ingestion. And so the reality is these ladies are poisoning themselves by using commercial douches. So the FDA, of course, has not shut down the commercial douche aisle. I don't know why. Obviously, they've killed more people than the Zika has. But Still, they're for sale. So, of course, the first moral of the story is there's nobody out there looking out for you, protecting you, 
and taking things off the market that are dangerous. So just don't even think that that's a possibility. Don't even think there's anyone examining stuff for safety. But even worse, I mean, just add insult to injury. Just just slap these ladies across the face as they're dying of ovarian cancer. No place in the doctor literature, no place in any of these um, credible, respectable establishment websites that just say, hey, prevent ovarian cancer by not using commercial douches. Make your own at home. Make your own at home. So what douche do I recommend? I recommend one quart distilled water, of course, with about three or four cloves of crushed garlic. Boil it for at least 10 minutes. That gets rid of the um, harsh, caustic nature of the garlic. Strain it so you don't have any bits. Add enough water back to make one quart and use that to douche with the old-fashioned um, douche bag, which you hang uh a little higher than uh, somewhere between waist high and the top of your head. So you can put it over the hook on the shower head, for example. But that is a douche you make yourself. It has no chemicals in it because all you're using is hopefully organic garlic. <laughs> um, and then that is going to clean out whatever you're trying to clean out. So it will get rid of yeast infections if you have one. It will not cause yeast infections, and it is perfectly safe. And so ovarian cancer is an excellent example of a cancer that is pretty much preventable. So if, one, you do not douche with any commercial douche products, because we see here they're not safe, and number two, if you um, get pregnant early and often, then your chances of ovarian cancer are basically zero, zippo, nothing. Um, and this is such an amazing thing that preventing this cancer is so simple. It's so easy. And if you're going to have a baby anyway, why not just go ahead and have one early and breastfeed? Oh, I know. It might interfere with your college education. Well, if you ask a lady with ovarian cancer if she'd rather have dropped out of college due to pregnancy or died at age 55 from ovarian cancer... I think most women would say, you know what, I think I could have dropped out of college and things would have worked out pretty well. Um, But what we have is we have a whole cultural construct for women that's built around destroying their health. Whether it's an overly tight bra that provides support, cuts off lymphatics and causes breast cancer, whether it's douching with commercial preparations and causing ovarian cancer, all of these things, or whether, excuse me, taking birth control pills uh, for decades on end and then contributing to breast cancer, heart attack, and stroke, we have a whole cultural construct, the linchpin of which, of course, is get your education first. So delay childbearing, take all these hormones to keep from getting pregnant, and then, of course, douche to keep yourself uh, attractive. And then what do we have? We have ovarian cancer. Now, dairy ingestion is a huge risk for ovarian cancer. So the sensible way to prevent ovarian cancer, I say sensible, I mean least obtrusive, would be no commercial douches, cut back on the dairy or just stop it, maybe have dairy twice a year on your birthday and Christmas, and uh, get pregnant early and often. 
So the important thing is to realize that these cancers are totally preventable, totally preventable. And so you have something like um, douching that increases ovarian cancer risk at 50%. All right, great. So no douching or douche with only douches that you um, make yourself from natural materials. So now we're down to 50% incidence of ovarian cancer. Or if you go by this research, it even cuts it down to one-third. So now it's 33% of people who get ovarian cancer would still get it. In other words, it's a 67% prevention rate. Then the next thing you can do is get pregnant and breastfeed. And now you've chomped that 33% down to around 10%. And so these ultra-natural, ultra-simple ways of intervening and just changing your lifestyle in ways, many of them not even obtrusive, um, can eradicate this cancer. And there is no early detection of ovarian cancer. By the time cancer is detected, um, it's a pretty good size. So there's not an early detection. Therapy is admittedly ineffective. The survival rate of five years is only 45%. And because there's no screening test for ovarian cancer, there is no opportunity to confound the figures with people who don't really have it. So that's, that's not an option. So the cancer is pretty far along by the time it's diagnosed, so there's not room for false diagnosis. And we also see this because if we look at the graph of ovarian cancer, the death rate of ovarian cancer is going down, and the detection rate is going down as well at the same time. If you look at other um, cancers like breast cancer, for example, the detection rate is going sky high, and the death rate is staying stable or going down. And so that tells you that healthy women are being classified as having the cancer. And so you can tell by the graph that the, that the diagnosis rate is paralleling the death rate. And because both are declining at the same uh, rate, the same slope, we see that we don't have um, healthy ladies introduced into the mix to falsify the numbers or give the appearance of improvement when maybe there is none. Okay, so ovarian cancer is totally within uh, the control of the average person. And um, the douching is simply um, a cause that can be uh, prevent, prevented. And so it's saying 20,000 American women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, every year, and 14,500 die from it every year. So this number, 14,500, can be slashed to 7,250 just by um, letting women know that they should not be using commercial douches they purchased at the drugstore. And this is something that women are not being told. Not at all. So it's, um, it is shocking that something, again, so easily, easy to prevent is treated as an inevitable, uh, devastating cancer that people need to live in fear of. When actually you can just say, you know what, I'm not buying any douches at the drugstore. That's cool. 
when I get pregnant, I'm going to breastfeed for as long as I can. Got that base covered. Okay, game over. Not taking any menopausal hormones of any kind, uh, bioidentical or otherwise. Uh, again, all these things basically just wipe out the risk of ovarian cancer. And let's see. Yep. And screening for ovarian cancer. If anyone offers it to you, please refuse it because it's totally unreliable. It is just going to set you on a trail of one test after another test, after another test, after another test. It's just going to put you basically on a treadmill. Okay. So we are pretty much ready for questions here. <laughs> All right, so just a comment in the chat room that I saw. All right, so let me see if there's anything else I can tell you about ovarian cancer. I could give you signs and symptoms, but really there's no point in early development because early detection because the therapy is not uh, reasonable. Um, but bloating, um, bladder pressure, constipation, vaginal bleeding, indigestion, shortness of breath, tiredness, weight loss, and getting full easy. These are all extremely vague symptoms. I mean, extremely vague symptoms. And really, it's almost like it could be anything. The only thing here that's specific would be vaginal bleeding. But bloating, anyone can bloat. Feel like you have some pressure in your bladder. happens all the time. Constipation comes and goes. Just take vitality capsules. Um, indigestion, acid reflux. Again, a lot of people have it and don't have ovarian cancer. In fact, men have indigestion and acid reflux. Shortness of breath it can happen any time for many reasons. You know, a gust of uh, exhaust fumes can cause you to get short of breath. Tiredness. Women are always tired. If you have a heavy period, a lot of bleeding, you can be tired. Weight loss, any woman will tell you. Weight fluctuates, goes up and down. Early satiety, you know, getting full early. Again, that could be anything. So the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very, very vague, extremely vague and not at all specific to the reproductive system at all. As you can see, many of them are just intestinal um, symptoms or generalized symptoms. And so because the symptoms are so vague, um, the diagnosis is very difficult and not generally made until, until very late. And even the um, United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends against screening with blood tests or ultrasounds. And so they just, they just do not recommend it. So lady has got to have some kind of uh, overwhelming symptom like the doctor finds a mass or a lump on exam. And again, no tumor marker uh, is specific or useful. And the x-rays um, are not very uh, useful either. So routine imaging is not required in patients where ovarian cancer is suggested. So if the diagnosis is uncertain, consider the following imaging studies. So consider, this is what they tell a doctor, consider. Pelvic ultrasound, CAT scan, chest x-ray, and that would be looking for spread of the cancer to the lungs, which is going to save you a lot of wear and tear a lot of times. Like, oh, spread to the lungs, forget it. Mammogram, and uh, that gets us to see if she has an associated breast cancer. And then, of course, you can get upper and lower endoscopy. They put a tube down your throat, up your butt. Barium enema, upper GI series. Again, this is what 
the poor lady is going to be subjected to. This workup alone could throw her into congestive heart failure and actually kill her doing all these tests and all the chemicals that these tests entail. So, um, you know, standard treatment for women with ovarian cancer involves aggressive debulking surgery. We'll call that maiming. I've seen that. It's gruesome. And chemotherapy. The aim of surgery is to confirm the diagnosis, define the extent of disease, and cut out all visible tumor. And again, we see this as ineffective because the five-year survival rate is only 46%. And the thing about ovarian cancer is it can be a very small cancer. In this case, it says if disease is greater than two centimeters, it's like it's not even an inch, is noted then aggressive surgical debunking debulking, which is maiming, with the intent to remove all visible disease should be undertaken. And I've not seen this uh, I've not seen this help anybody. This is this is this this is so awful in terms of just gruesome cutting this lady up and sometimes they don't even leave enough skin to properly close of the incision. So you have this woman with this open cavity and they've just scraped everything out of her. It, it's it's really awful. You know, I've, I've seen this in residency training. And then for chemotherapy, they had a list of two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven drugs. And that alone is indication that the drugs just don't work. So if you have eleven different drugs that the doctor tries, that means that nothing is found to be especially uh, helpful. And even with those eleven drugs, they have five more to help those drugs work better. So again, this is just a piling on of money-making interventions whose results are um, not great. All right, so should you decide to embark on ovarian therapy, that's what you have to look forward to. Now, just to let you know how hopeless, gruesome, and barbaric this whole thing is, they have a news article, this is in your doctor's, uh, this is the doctor part of the Internet that you guys are not allowed to see, and it says the fatal attraction of an ovarian cancer test. In other words, um, getting an ovarian cancer test is, there's nothing good here. Either the tests are going to do you in, or they're going to find ovarian cancer, and that's going to kill you. So this is not a road to go down, and this is even... You know, even in the doctor forum, uh, they say so. Okay. All right. So let me go check and see if we have questions in our chat room. Okay. So if you guys who are listening live have questions, you can click the button. Let me go check out the chat room. Oh, <laughs> All right, so we're looking for, uh, here we are. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of links. Okay. All right, so people in the chat room are concerned with uh, jetliners. Okay. Okay, this person is talking about um, soybeans, and the Americans don't eat much um, soybeans directly. 
Actually, I like organic soybeans. We fortunately can get them down here in Panama, so I buy them like twice a year. So after harvest, most soybeans are crushed and divided into two parts meal, which goes into feed for animals that become our meat and fat, and oil, cooking oil or in food products. According to the U.S. Soy Board, soy accounts for 61% of America's vegetable oil consumption. And so most people are eating vegetable oil and not realizing it, uh, of course. Okay. A question. If the sphincter malfunctions during acid reflux, how could you fix it? Okay. So um, the sphincter is not malfunctioning during acid reflux. The sphincter during acid reflux is open and the acid is flushing upward. The reason that's happening is you have parasites hanging around at that junction, and those parasites cause the sphincter to open, and then the acid um, backslashes into the lower esophagus. And so the answer, of course, is either restore the acid balance by increasing your acid with something like apple cider vinegar, uh, one to two tablespoons before meals, or you could simply um, take turpentine. And for information on that, you can just go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida, C-A-N-D-I-D-A. Okay, Dr. Daniels, if you have a child in the hospital and the doctor says a surgery or medication is needed or it's life and death, can you still say you want to pray on it to stop them from giving a child medications or surgery? The answer is yes, you can still do that, that you're going to pray on it. And you have to be very clear that you're going to pray on it. And I would say stay right by the kid's bedside as you pray. Um, however, there, you, you, that does not mean you can take the child out of the hospital. They may decide to prevent you from doing that. But you can certainly refuse on the basis of praying on it. However, the question is, how did the kid get to the hospital in the first place? And so... I would say for, you know, most parents, the best thing is not to take the, the kid to the hospital in the first place. That is very, very important. And once you enter the hospital, cross the threshold of the hospital, um, the hospital becomes the locum parentis, not only for the child, but really for you too. So nobody gets to go into the hospital and... Um, exercise unlimited free will. I'll put it to you that way. So once you enter the hospital, you're effectively under arrest. That would be the proper way to consider it. And once you're in the hospital, then you have to um, realize that you are under arrest and you have to be cautious in you know, how you plan your escape, really. Um, you know, It's best to have someone who can assist you and that person can make gentle inquiries as to um, finding out against medical advice and where are the forms for that and how is that done? Is there a particular place to sign? You know, that, so someone can make the inquiry on your behalf. So that gives you deniability. Oh, I didn't know he was asking those questions. Oh, well, it wasn't me. So if you have to backtrack and pretend that, of course, you're a cooperative good, and good patient, you can do that. But you do need a, um, you know, some kind of advocate to help you either sign out against medical advice 
or to help you get transferred to the care of uh, another physician who's hopefully across town, which is what I did with my, my brother. I said, okay, uh, we're going to transfer him to the care of a doctor across town, and I'm going to drive him over there. Of course, I drove him straight home instead. But it does need to be a planned escape uh, for many reasons. One, you don't want them calling in the psychiatrist, declaring you incompetent and forcing care on you. That's number one. And number two, a lot of people don't, that they want their insurance to pay for the hospital visit. They don't want to have to sustain the five to $20,000 bill for what apparently is turning out to be an undesirable experience. So I would say your life is worth more than that. Um, take the hit if you have to. And just uh, once you realize things aren't going your way, just, uh, just get out. Okay. Okay, so someone says, Dr. Dennis, I've been trying to use turpentine with sugar cubes and getting very confused. Should I use granulated sugar? Absolutely. Switch to granulated sugar. Okay. Got that question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I had varicose vein treatments five years later. My ankle is swollen. What to do? Uh, honestly, you, you're screwed. Oh, more or less. But, but this is what happened. You have varicose vein treatments. Usually it's stripping the veins. In other words, removing the veins from your um, leg. And what happens when you strip the veins is uh, there's less capacity to return blood to the heart and you get swelling. So your swelling is due to the lack of veins. That's usually uh, what is going on. So whenever you have um, medical treatments or interventions, it generally impairs your ability to heal naturally. Having said that, what can you do? Um, You can apply castor oil from the waist down. I would do both sides, both legs. And what that is going to do is that's going to um, remove impediments to the free flow of liquid um, back to the heart. And so that should help with your swelling. The next thing you can do is check your diet and um, see if you're eating something that is causing the swelling. What would that something be? That something would be... um, lots of dairy, lots of meat. And um, another thing you can do is you can do um, heel raises. That means you stand with your feet flat, lift your ankles up, lower them, lift your ankles up, lower them. What this does is it causes contraction of your calf muscle, and that literally sucks the water up out of your ankle and um, makes your ankles nice and skinny. So initially, you're probably only going to be able to do maybe five of those, but you want to keep at it and move your um, work your way up to about um, really 50 of them. And so you're going to develop some very shapely um, legs. And, of course, your ankles will get nice and slender. Okay. Let's see. What do we have? (laughs) 
okay. <laughs> so in the uh, chat room, they're they're talking about uh, turpentine, and so this person has got a whole very elaborate scheme uh, for taking turpentine, which is so complex uh, it makes my brain grind to a halt. And so uh, this one person in the chat room is trying to help them understand better, and says, well. You know, Dr. Dance didn't just shoot a shot of turpentine and hope for the best. She built up gradually. That's something that's important for all of us to remember, I feel. Exactly. So read the report. Vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. Nobody should attempt turpentine without reading the full report. In that report, I tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. I tell you everything that went wrong with turpentine. And I tell you how to avoid it. So it makes more sense to get this free report, free, free, free report at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida rather than asking a whole bunch of, you know, um, questions, I guess. So read the report first for sure. And one says, well, Dr. Daniels prepared her will and put it in a handy place in case of her demise. (laughs) Yes, I did do that, and that's in the report, too. You can uh, read that. All right, so question. What can a person do for liver failure? Um, it depends on the cause. There are many causes of liver failure. Um, if alcohol intake is your is the reason, then you need to take high-dose thiamine, cut back your alcohol take. If Tylenol is the reason, then you can take N-acetylcysteine, um, pretty high doses. There's actually a nomogram. Let me see if I can find it. Nomogram, N-O-M-O-G-R-A-M, nomogram. So when you come into the emergency room and you have, um, yep, it is a nomogram, nomogram for Tylenol poisoning. Your doctor actually consults this chart. And it tells him how poisoned you're likely to be from the Tylenol, and it tells him how much N-acetylcysteine to give you. And this is posted in every single emergency room, certainly in the United States. And so this nomogram is something, it's it's a spectacle to behold. You have this line crossing with that line crossing with the other line. You have to figure out where your patient's lines are crossing. And... um, to figure out how much N-acetylcysteine to give them. And they inject this stuff intravenously. But you're at home, so you can buy N-acetylcysteine powder online. It's very cheap, and it's not that cheap, but it's like $60 a kilo. And um, it will reverse Tylenol poisoning and reverse liver poisoning and liver failure. So let's see if we can find the dosing. So if your kilograms of your body... Uh, they only have, this is for kids, for 66 pounds or less, then the loading dose is 150 milligrams per kilogram over one hour. Then it's repeated 50 milligrams per kilogram over, over four hours, and then 100 milligrams per kilogram over 16 hours. And so this is how it's dosed. And you can find this little nomogram on the Internet. And this is how your um, doctor treats Tylenol poisoning and liver failure thereof. Ah, so this person says they have it due to alcohol. All right. So 
N-acetylcysteine is used for liver failure due to Tylenol, but it might help for alcohol as well. Um, but for alcohol, you want to stop the alcohol. I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, but it would be nice to stop the alcohol. And you cannot stop it suddenly. You have to just cut it back, like maybe cut it down to half. Thiamine, 100 milligrams. Or you can take B50, two of them. That's a start. But uh, if you have liver failure due to um, alcohol use, that's a little, I think, a little more complicated. Um, it's usually you have a lot of other things associated with it. You have abdominal swelling. You have easy bleeding, easy bruising, and just a general everything falling apart, so to speak. So um, I think you need to approach that uh, gently with um, B vitamins, reducing your alcohol, and eating a more nutritious diet. Um, So that's the story about um, liver failure. Now, also, coming up September 8th, and that's pretty close, but there's still good flights to Panama. I'm having a one-week retreat here in Panama where people get to experience healing diets. You get to experience a vegetarian diet, vegan diet, raw food diet, juice fast, even water fast, and a refeeding diet. One big mistake natural healers make is to believe that fasting can cure anything and everything, and they actually excessively fast people um, and causing uh, great harm. And so should you decide to come to Panama or be fortunate enough to do so, um, you would learn about all these different diets, how to use them to heal, how to know when you've gone far enough, when to cut back or stop. And um, the game plan is to help you make rapid progress in seven days to experience these healing diets, um, provide supplements, I provide herbal blends, show you how to mix them, you can get to try try to mix a few yourself. Uh, And we have strategy sessions to coach you on healing your family and friends in difficult cases if you're in the business of healing. And it includes accommodations, meals, supplements, instruction, demonstrations, hands-on learning, transportation to and from the airport, as well as equipment, which you are welcome and encouraged to take home with you so you can begin being the healer in your home and not have to dial 911 because, of course, you would be the 911. And so all you would have to bring is an open mind, and even your high-tech toothbrush and all natural personal care products are provided as well, of course, when you get here, you get instructions on how to prepare your own natural personal care products. And so from the time you step off of the plane to the time you return to the airport, everything is covered. So just shoot Shalee an email, Shalee, S-H-A-L-E-E, at VitalityCapsules.com and say, hey, you'd like to know more, and Shalee will take it from there. We also have an online 10-week follow-up phase of the program. And during that 10-week follow-up, I meet with people once a week and we review the whole program and also answer questions people have as they implement natural healing with their family, friends, or even um, clients if, you're, if you have um, natural healing clients. 
uh, my goal is to make health contagious, to make health absolutely contagious so that one healthy person can heal others and make them healthy as well. And we can start an epidemic of health and keep people from even engaging the medical industrial complex that is responsible for over 880,000 deaths in the United States each year. And this calculation, of course, as outrageous as it may seem, is based on figures provided by the medical industrial complex itself. And uh, enrolling in this course can easily save an individual over $100,000 in co-pays, deductibles, even premiums in a period of 10 years or less. So this is something that even one trip to the emergency room being avoided would more than uh, pay your uh, tuition, curriculum, and everything. So contact Shale, S-H-A-L-E-E, at vitalitycapsules.com for more information. And we'll get that information right out to you um, so we can see if if, uh, it's a program that's right for you and personally, I think anyone can stand to uh, save $100,000. It's very important. One of those drop everything and just do it type things. All right. Let me see. <laughs> All right. There you go. Okay. So somebody in the chat room says, by the way, uh, people have told me that they've had headaches and other reactions when taking turpentine without changing their lifestyle or anything. Then they go back, they do all the cleansing and the bowel movements that are recommended, and then when their body is cleaned and ready, they, re- they do the turpentine again, and there is no reaction at all. Just food for thought. Exactly. So please, 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 definitely... Um, Get your free report, vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida, C-A-N-D-I-D-A, and do follow the instructions. I made them as simple and non-restrictive as possible because after decades of working with people, realizing people want the easiest, simplest way possible, I've given you a very simple way to go. But you you do have to do it. If, if If you don't plan to have more bowel movements, if you don't plan to change anything, then probably turpentine is not for you. And even in the report, uh, I say, even if you just make a 50% change in each category that I recommend changes, even if you just do 50%, most will find things go very, very smoothly. So don't punish yourself. Don't torture yourself. Do it right. Get your report, vitalitycapsules.com or slash candida. Okay, that's my warning. They're yelling in my ear that my show is over. So that is it for today. And as always, think happens and do contact Shelley at vitalitycapsules.com.